Hello and welcome back to episode 18 of the Axe and Politics. This is season two. We have a great interview for you guys today with Michael Tubbs, the newly elected mayor of Stockton, youngest ever mayor of Stockton, and also first African-American mayor of Stockton um, at 26. Tubbs is really, really impressive, and he's also a Stanford grad. Should be really great. But in the meantime, I'm Lucas. I'm Maddie. And I think sort of the, the biggest narrative coming out of this week, for me at least, is just the utter chaos and disorganization that's currently surrounding the Trump White House right now. For sure. So um, I guess the biggest example of this would be the um, new executive order banning people from um, seven Muslim-dominated countries for 90 days, which during the rollout created tons and tons of issues across the country. Yeah, the rollout was very unorganized, very uncoordinated state had a different interpretation department of state had a different interpretation of the order compared to the department of homeland security compared to what the trump white house envisioned you had sort of literally customs immigration officers at airports detaining green card holders um, people u.s residents that are legally allowed to live in this country at the airport because of this order later on the trump administration sort of said oh we'll determine this on a case-by-case basis like this is not what we meant but um it's telling that there was it was rolled out so hastily and sort of without coordination at all, and so many people had different ideas of what was supposed to happen. That's pretty concerning, aside from the obvious policy concerns. Um, yeah, so within a few days, a federal appeals court judge actually blocked the Trump executive order, not just in his state, but um, across the country. Um, and Trump then tweeted quote, the opinion of this so-called judge, with which essentially takes law enforcement away from our country, is ridiculous and will be overturned. Yeah, he followed that up. It was really a, a series of tweets that, just awful in my opinion. He says, what is our country coming to when a judge can halt a homeland security travel ban and anyone, even with bad intentions, can come into the U.S.? Another one, just cannot believe a judge would put our country in such peril if something happens to if something happens, blame him and the court system. People pouring in, bad, exclamation point. So this um, original travel ban created massive protests at airports all over the country um, on top of the chaos that was going on within the enforcement in the airports. There was also these protests, which Donald Trump blamed for much of the chaos, um, but clearly wasn't completely at fault for all of the chaos. Um, and we actually had elected officials rushing from events all over the country towards the airports in their district, um, both in, mostly in support of um, the protesters there um, and wanting to be a part of this um, movement. Movement, yeah. Yeah, and I'd say adding to that, how quickly people were able to mobilize in opposition to this, as well as the magnitude of the opposition, really speaks to just how sort of troubling this order is, right? Just like this federal judge um, put a temporary stay on it, there's a large number of constitutional concerns. You have the order preferring religious minorities from certain countries over others, which is arguably in violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. You have U.S. residents, green card holders, being denied due process at the airport, which is obviously a violation of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. Um, Regardless if that was the intention, it, it happened. And then you have sort of a more less substantial argument, but could be argued that it is, in fact, a Muslim ban. The Trump has really fought against that term, but a lot of media outlets have been calling it a Muslim ban, mostly due to the fact that it evolved out of his 
initial campaign statement, which was, I want to ban all Muslims from entering the country, which obviously is also unconstitutional in violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause and sort of Freedom of Religion Clause and every so many First Amendment acts. Um, For so. sure. And the, um, the executive order also was the first time um, that some of the chaos has transferred into the business community. So at JFK, there was the taxis were going on strike in support of this ban. Um, and then... Uh, you had companies like Starbucks yeah. saying we're going to hire immigrants mm-hmm. from all these countries intentionally. Airbnb took a very harsh stance yep. against the order. Um, um, Uber and Lyft, one of the two, actually ended up lowering their surge prices at airports, which then created a lot of com- controversy over whether or not they were undermining the taxi strike. There was just um, chaos all around mm-hmm. airports. And I think Trump's tweets regarding the judge really speak to this chaos and also to a, just a poor misunderstanding of how our country works. Right? I quote him saying, what is our country coming to when a judge can halt a homeland security travel ban and anyone, even with bad intentions, coming to the U.S.? Um, our country hasn't come to anything because that is the Justice Department's role is to say, you know, to defend the, the rule of law and the principles laid out by the Constitution. And I don't, I don't think the country's come to anything. I think this is justice sort of doing what they do in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It was, it was definitely a, a crazy week with respect to the to that executive order. But another executive order that was also highlighted this week was one in which Trump reassembled his National Security Council, appointing Steve Bannon, his chief strategist, to a member of the principal National Security Council, while simultaneously demoting um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as well as the director of national intelligence, who are two figures that have typically been constant members of the National Security Council for any president of any political party. For sure. So the National Security Council is usually deemed as a nonpartisan principal agent yeah, in, the, in, entity the White House. in the White House. It's mostly comprised of national security experts, people, military officials, mm-hmm. generals, people with experience in the world of the military who can sort of provide objective like go or no goes in times of like real like crisis and national security decision making. So meanwhile, two of those most important figures were taken off of the council and Steve Bannon, who is inherently a very political person, was put onto this council. Um, for reference, that would be kind of like David Axelrod um, in the Obama White House, and he was absolutely nowhere near this council. Um, his job was politics, policy, and the security of our country, um, you know, is related, but not so directly related that he need to be in on these extremely, extremely important meetings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, we talked about this narrative of chaos. New York Times actually came out with a story today quoted saying, despite Mr. Trump's anger that he was not fully briefed on the details of the executive order, he signed giving his tree strategist a seat on the National Security Council. So the whole article in general was sort of charting this this, this disorganization that like we've been talking about um, in this opening. But this quote's especially concerning because apparently Trump was not fully briefed about the fact that Bannon was going to have a seat on the National Security Council, which has sort of been feeding into this narrative of For sure. So, you know, Bannon actually wrote this executive order um, or is in charge of these executive orders. So, you know, him kind of grasping power, the chaos inside. There's now rumor that um, Trump is uh, quickly trying to figure out some checks and balances on Bannon's power in the Security Council. Yeah, it's definitely 
concerning, and I think it speaks to the fact that the Trump administration and Trump himself probably wasn't really ready for the presidency, didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. I guess that's a little bit of a hyperbole. They knew what they were getting themselves into, but so far they've seemed to act very instinctually and act sort of trying to fulfill campaign promises like originally what was supposed to be a Muslim ban turned into extreme vetting from immigrants from these countries. Um, they, they look to score these, these points with their, with their base, but at the same time, they're ignoring key aspects of separation of powers, key aspects of the Constitution, key aspects of how the government is typically run. Um, Certainly, like, if the goal is to keep, fulfill these campaign promises, the rollout of these has been completely unsatisfactory. Um, yeah, and just disorganized. Just, yeah. Just not in, a, in an orderly manner, um, which is surprising. But one sort of interesting... Thing that runs a little bit counter to what we've seen from these two um, instances in particular is the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Um, you had Chuck Schumer coming out saying 10 Democrats will obstruct anyone outside the legal mainstream that Trump nominates. Judge Gorsuch is certainly, um, by most standards, a member of the legal mainstream. This is a man who serves as an appellate court judge in Colorado. He was appointed by George W. Bush to that position, confirmed unanimously by the Senate, Highly regarded, um, actually went to law school with Obama at Harvard. Um, so they were classmates, quotes from Obama and other, and one of Obama's good friends from law school saying they think very highly of Judge Gorsuch. Um, conservatives, yes, likely a lot of people are calling him sort of a, not a carbon copy of Scalia, but very much of the same vein, very similar justices. Um, but that nomination occurred very orderly, very sort of, typical of what you would expect of the nomination. Again, the justice is no one that's sort of out of line or that runs super counter to constitutional principles or anything like that. That's sort of Trump has done with these other policies. So in talking about the president with the um, nomination, the Democratic strategy of how to deal with this um, is up in question. So if um, I guess one option that's being very heavily publicly pressurized is to obstruct anything Trump does um, in the most visible, loud, strong way possible, Um, in which case this would be to um, filibuster and object and obstruct in any way possible. Um, If that were to happen, the um, Republicans would probably just change the Senate rules, removing um, the ability for them to filibuster. Um, and they would go ahead and confirm him. Um, so regardless of whether or not Democrats throw up a big fight, he probably will go to a vote, in which case uh, their choice is to vote yes or to vote no. And if they voted yes, it could be because he is in the legal mainstream and he is extremely well-respected. And, and well-qualified, a man that sort of deserves to serve on the court. For sure. And, but at the same time, if you vote yes, um, you'll be questioned, are you voting yes and endorsing the antics that Republicans took in the last um, cycle with Judge Merrick Garland? Are you endorsing that mm-hmm. by um, you know, not standing up for Merrick Garland yeah. and his seat on the court? Um, and in addition to that, you have a significant sort of portion of the left, in my opinion, that really, like Maddie was saying, wants to obstruct anything and everything Trump does. And if you vote yes, you run pretty much against against that grain. 
For sure, but if you vote no, that could be a symbolic no because he still will pass because this, um, the Republic, Republicans have a majority in the Senate. Um, but are you voting no because he's not a good justice? Are you voting no because of Merrick Garland's dignity? Are you voting no because for revenge? Or is it just a, you know, a big symbolic no, mm-hmm. um, which, again, puts the margin, which would be 52-48, um, into question because the older justices on the Supreme Court were all approved by wide margins, and the newer members on the court are all incredibly more politicized and closer votes. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the fact that this simple yes or no can be interpreted in a variety of ways. And, right, these senators are thinking about their constituents back home. So I'd imagine there are a good number of Democratic senators, I think, in my opinion, that are probably pretty fine with Justice Gorsuch serving on the court, but but regardless will vote no on his nomination for these symbolic purposes to appeal to their base, at the same time knowing that he still will end up on the court. And I think that really just speaks to the polarized times we live in, um, how even this branch of government that has that was designed to largely remain sort of insulated from the partisan politics that can sometimes consume our nation, how even that has become politicized now, um, which is fascinating in and of itself. But sort of translating away from national news, there's been some interesting stuff happening on in the Bay Area, especially at our friends over at uh, the University of California in Berkeley. Uh, Maddie? For sure. So um, the Berkeley College Republicans invited uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, Yiannopoulos. No one really knows how to pronounce it, but we're going to go with Yiannopoulos. Um, a right-wing commentator who um, ha- has written for Breitbart News is closely affiliated with Steve Bannon, who is so... Um, politicized right now. Yeah, sort of, a lot, many consider Milo to be a member of the alt-right. Certainly extremely controversial views, very inflammatory rhetoric, many things that just run directly in opposition to a lot of the values this country stands for, but regardless. And um, especially, you know, California Berkeley is known as a liberal hub, um, even in the Bay, within the Bay Area, which is liberal in and of itself. Um, so students were protesting the event um, in a peaceful manner, manner, but outsiders and non-university affiliates ca- came in and started throwing rocks and setting off commercial-grade fireworks at police. Um, and they were attacking students who were members of the Berkeley College Republicans. Um, and they, these riots caused over $100,000 worth of damage to the campus, including smashed windows, burning lights, uh, po- light poles, and cars. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a demonstration of, I guess, the first demonstration that has turned violent since the inauguration. Mm-hmm. And. You know, Berkeley, coming into this event before these protests occurred, the university was very careful about how they were going to handle this because they knew that they had to provide the space for Mahalo to speak at the campus regardless of the fact that his views run so contradictory to what the university stands for and sort of what they believe the country stands for. So their statement before the fact was, while Yiannopoulos' views, tactics, and rhetoric are profoundly contrary to our own, we are bound by the Constitution, the law, our values, and the campus's principles of community to enable free expression across the full spectrum of opinion and perspective. Right? So this is the, the free speech argument that, again, I think many people would agree that Yiannopoulos did, sort of had the right to speak at Berkeley. Um, but it seems like he, he put the far left to a test, and they failed that test, unfortunately. Um, 
you know, terrible, terrible damage done to the campus. Everyone should sort of not support this kind of protesting. It was, it was quite awful, all told. I mean, literally, students, members of the college Republicans were physically harmed by these protesters. And again, most of them were not university students. They were outsiders. But at the same time, the far right or even just anyone really has can use this in their arsenal of criticizing protests forever now. Um, again, like I said, they were put to the test and they unfortunately failed. And it's tough because he's definitely a very, very inflammatory figure and he was trying to get people to act out and, and they did. So. Yeah, which is um, especially relevant at Stanford, not because Berkeley is close, not because Berkeley is a rival, um, but because Milo um, was asked, asked to speak here um, and was actually turned away by um, the more conservative groups on Stanford's campus, which says something about them um, and their reputation um, and their uh, direction. Yeah, um, yeah, very interesting stuff. Um, and I guess in other Stanford news, nothing, nothing terribly big coming out of campus this past week. Um, certainly not of the magnitude of the things we've been discussing. But nonetheless, Persis Drell has officially started her tenure as the new provost. She sent out a very, very carefully worded email, I'd say, um, to the sure. student body, addressing obviously the concerns regarding the immigration executive order, but other concerns that the student body has had with the administration in the past. Um, so she says, quote, that issues are that are important to students are very important to me. My style is to welcome input, to be upfront about problems, and to confront issues head on. Um, and then goes on to talk about um, recent political issues um, in the news and how Stanford is going to support their students and her support for Stanford supporting students, um, as well as... Um, the sexual assault issue on campus and her encouragement and support of the confidential support team, um, the Title IX office, and uh, the process for managing reports of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the talking point here really is that these are these are very easy things to say, and the question is, can she actually follow through on this? Right? She, I mean, you know, this is language that Etchemendi and. Um, Hennessy really continually sort of put out there. Anyone and can write this. It's, anyone can write this, right. It's just is, on paper. Yeah. Um, and I guess related to that is where in the paragraph where she said, you know, my style is to welcome input, to be upfront about problems, to confront issues head on with you, the students, and, you know, students' opinions are very important to me. She didn't really outline any tangible action items nor any tangible policies that sort of facilitate more student administration communication other than simple email or things that the student body is used to seeing. Yeah, so we'll see. Um, she and uh, President Tessier Levine ha are starting their brown bag lunches soon, um, which, you know, kind of seems like an olive branch, but mm -hmm. we'll see how well attended they are, how successful they are, and how much they are just a publicity stunt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are. These brown bag lunches, they're for those listeners who don't know, there's sort of informal office hours that the provost and the president will hold with students in an open forum type setting, um, which certainly seems very promising. I uh, applaud them for starting that, but we'll see if what gets said at these brown bag lunch sessions translates into actual policy. But I think that just about wraps it up for us this week. Um, again, stay tuned for this incredible, incredible interview that SBJ staff writer Michaela Siminski did with Michael Tubbs. Again, Tubbs, recently elected mayor of Stockton, California, youngest ever elected mayor. 
first African-American, really impressive. Yeah, he's been endorsed by Oprah. He's just absolutely, mm-hmm. um, for those of us who know a little bit about him, we are just in awe. Mm-hmm. And recent Stanford grad as well, so one of our own. Thanks, guys. Hi, everyone. This is Michaela. Um, I had the opportunity to talk with um, recently elected mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs, and um, the following is audio of our interview. Hey, Michael. Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Um, So just to give you a little background on myself, uh, I'm an urban studies major. I'm a senior. Um, I'm also an African and African-American studies minor, um, and I'm writing a thesis in the Graduate School of Education. So our interests really align. Um, So uh, just to kick us off, what did you major in at Stanford? Awesome, awesome. For those listeners at home, um, CSRE stands for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity, and uh, the POLS program is uh, Policy, Organization, and Leadership Studies in the Graduate School of Education. So, yeah, I I think um, a lot of people at the Political Journal and um, on campus really wanted to hear from someone working at the local level um, about both the city of Stockton and your role in it, and then also how you see Stockton um, as playing into the larger uh, national political sphere. Um, So I can kick us off um, with a couple questions, unless you have any, like, questions or comments or anything for me. Absolutely, I'm happy to answer questions. Cool, cool. Um, so, I guess maybe a little, uh, a little bit about you. Um, you clearly embody the ideal of young people jumping into local government and action. So, what role do young people have in shaping policy today? Uh, well, especially given the national landscape, there's a couple roles, right? I think there's roles for organizers and activists. Um, there's where there's a role for policymakers, especially folks who in schools like Stanford often have privilege to sit at tables or be part of conversations or be in positions of power that influence on the allocation of resources and the positive burden of institutions that affect people's lives. Um, and there's also roles for, for elected office. Um, I don't think everyone should be an activist or everyone should be a policy person or everyone should be an elected official, but I do think there's enough roles for people to go where they're most skilled at. For sure. Um, so what drives you personally? Well, I'm driven by several things. Um, number one, I, because of the background experience, I fundamentally believe that talent and intellect are universal, but resources and opportunities are. Um, and I say that being born like in poverty, young mother, incarcerated father, um, and just seeing a lot of my peers who are just as smart, just as talented, have different um, choices and influences than I have. Um, that's why I didn't work hard, but I think it's a misnomer to suggest that all one has to do to work hard in America to be successful. Statistically, um, that's not true. Um, and some of the hardest working people I know are people who work at Disney's or people who work in the fields, and and people and by our standard of success being how much you make, when you be considered successful. Uh, that's what drives me. I'm also driven. Um, I I just think that to whom much is given, much is required. And the Stanford education 
um, has really given me an opportunity to have, be a person of influence. And the fact that I take lightly. Um, and, but I'm also driven by just like really lived experiences with the issues I care about. Um, living in poverty, um, having family members, including my fathers and uncles, being incarcerated. Um, having family members who have been victims of homicides and shootings. Um, like all these issues, not just abstract things I read on the news or I read, I study at campus, but things I live. I'm in study. So I think um, I just feel a special responsibility to do all I can um, to increase opportunity for everyone. Definitely. Uh, so what would you say to people who uh, haven't had personal experiences that drive them to public service? Is there a way to uh, get them involved? Or um, can we just, I guess, realistically expect them to fill other roles in society? Yeah, well, I think it's both, right? I, I, think, um, I think having lived experience is important. But even if you don't have lived experience, as humans, we have the capacity to empathize. Definitely. Um, so there's something, like for example, I'm doing a lot of work with the immigrant community in Stockton, and no one from my family are immigrants, um, at least in the last four generations. So it's not an experience I personally experienced, but something I empathize with as a human being, not when you see my family deported to a place that had been to in decades, right? Definitely. Um, so, so, so I think that, um, Having lived experience matters, and I don't think all the people at a policy table should just be people who went to Stanford. Um, but I also think that, okay, I don't, but so there's a role to play, but I don't think being a Stanford student is, is necessarily insufficient enough to be a leader or to be a policymaker. I don't. For sure. Um, and that might, be, that might be connecting with and listening to people who actually experience the things we're working on. Well, oftentimes taking the back seat and letting those people lead and figuring out how to best support them. Exactly. Yeah, um, can you can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing surrounding immigration? I think that's especially pertinent given this past week's political events. Yes, yeah, so I've been working um, really closely with our police chief just to clarify our policy. Um, I've been assured numerous times our policy is one that we don't arrest. Here, let me read it verbatim so I have it in email so I can speak with... Um, Accuracy. So awesome. <laughs> yeah, take your time. Yeah, clarifying the policy is something I'm uh, really interested in personally, and I've seen a lot of uh, work being done trying to clarify, especially um, policy around like sanctuary cities um, and like local uh, municipal relations with federal immigration law. So I definitely I'm interested in hearing. Give me a quick. Give me a quick second to pull it up. And let's see. No, not unread. Okay. Where are we? Legal theories, hope and healing. I'm sorry, I'm get a quick No, take your time. I'm sure it's pretty full, <laughs> given that you're a mayor. <laughs> So is the operable phrase the fact that he or she may be, so that's giving law enforcement officials grounds to really 
just like suppose that anyone could be undocumented or um, I'm not sure I understand the question but from my understanding of, of what the chief said basically the idea is that we're not looking for undocumented people to round them up nor do we cooperate with ICE in that way okay cool so how is so Stockton is basically able to pass a policy that says that you won't cooperate with uh, federal officials yeah, well, our police officers are able to say, yeah, essentially that, that, pull it up. Yeah, that we don't stop, question, detain, arrest, or place an immigration hold on person uh, because they are undocumented. That's not what our police department is going to do. Okay. Okay, cool. Awesome. So if other cities wanted to follow your lead, would you suggest they adopt a policy like yours? Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of uh, confusion around immigration and um, knowing who can do what and who has the authority to do what um, is something a lot of people have been trying to figure out. So that's really cool to hear um, that Stockton's doing that work. Um, And then maybe could we go back to uh, what you're discussing about poverty and um, is poverty one of the big challenges that you've been facing in Stockton? Yeah, absolutely. I think... When we think about crime and education and all these things, the research tells us the root cause of violence or the root root cause of educational inequity is often poverty. Definitely. Yeah, so um, are you, how are you tackling um, or at least approaching poverty and social policy regarding it? Are you going at it from like an employment standpoint or? Well, it's interesting because the way California governments are set up, the county governments actually have all the anti-poverty programs in terms of services. Um, so, so as mayor, what, I, what I'm doing is trying to just put together these collective impact approaches and use the bully pulpit and convening power um, to get folks in the room to think through how to help address poverty in our community. So it looks like um, workforce development with a focus on the skills gap. Um, it looks like um, enticing employers to come to Stockton and providing them the incentives to do so, but also making sure they hire people from the community for the jobs they bring, um, and things like that. Cool. And um, so what type of employers are you enticing to come to Stockton, and how are you doing that? Is it, like, tech uh, tech workers? I've just been in for two weeks, so we haven't hit the ground running on everything yet. Um, but one of the ideas, I think one of your questions you guys submit alludes to this, is kind of leveraging our position between Silicon Valley and Sacramento with our port, with our airports, with our proximity freeways. Um, to really position ourselves as a low-cost option for companies that are looking to expand, um, whether it's tech companies or other companies. Definitely. Um, but, but also, but also looking at sort of where, where's our niche, so like health healthcare, health tech, agriculture, agritech, um, logistics, manufacturing, stuff like that. Right. 
Right. Yeah, because I was wondering about your perspective on um, Stockton and its role in kind of the Bay Area housing crisis, because I know um, that Stockton is a little farther out away, you know, geographically, but um, I don't know that any area is immune to the housing crisis that is going on in the Bay Area right now. Is that a concern for Stockton? Well, I mean, when people are displaced from the Bay Area, they often end up in Vallejo, Stockton, Walnut Creek, etc. Um, so it's a bit of a concern um, insofar as a lot of these folks who are being displaced from the Bay Area still make an income that's higher than probably our average oftentimes, um, which kind of creates different conditions, conditions in our rental market. So we've seen rents in Stockton go up over the past three years, and our folks in Stockton are being priced out of some of the units here. So we're really thinking through a housing strategy that accommodates in the place of new people, but then the place the people we already have. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it would... Um Stockton would have like a, a big uh, accountability to, or a lot of accountability to the industries that are already there. Um, so, so that's cool that you're trying to keep the industries kind of in place, but also be um, like an attraction point for um, other industries to come in. Um, so, in terms of, I guess, uh, going back also to what you mentioned about shootings and incarceration. Um, what is like a has incarceration um, kind of posed a challenge um, for you so far? Thinking through like in your as you move into the role of mayor, how you're going to address incarceration in Stockton? Um, have you encountered a lot of different ideas, or is there kind of like one plan moving forward? Well, I mean, so. Uh, so. I've heard a couple questions, so if I, if I ramble on, feel free to stop me and, and focus me. Um, but in terms of incarceration, the biggest thing we've been working on um, at, on the city level is figuring out, or I've been working on, or the, even I was on council, is figuring out once people are out of jail, how do we help reduce recidivism rates with a focus on employment and housing? Um, so at some point, we'll make conversation with property owners about the importance of raising a lot of folks that may have criminal past or records opportunity to, to have housing because they deserve to live in a house not if they're out and pay their time, but also working with the first to figure out how they employ these people. Right. How they, how they employ our folks to give them jobs, and kind of what jobs are they best suited for. Um, and then working very closely with the school district to kind of figure out interventions to interrupt kind of the prison pipeline but also work with our police department in focusing our energies on violent crime. So we're not criminalizing poverty or criminalizing trivial things. We're really focused on sort of violent crime um, and then like slum lords. Exactly. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I think um, the school-to-prison pipeline is a really uh, important thing to focus on. Um, and do you think, do you foresee challenges um, in addressing the school-to-prison pipeline considering uh, current, like, national politics? Or do you think that addressing the school-to-prison pipeline is indeed something that kind of belongs to the local level and it's something that can be addressed at the local level? Well, well the way I think about federalism is kind of both, right? 
Um, so at, at the local level, despite what's going on nationally, we'll remain committed to finding positive interventions for, for students that are not pushed out of school. Um, so working very close with the school district um, to figure out sort of what are some of the input interventions and supports we can give children um, so they're not pushed out of school, but also how do we help improve their neighborhoods with beyond just policing. Right, right. Okay, cool. Um, so I guess just a couple wrap-up questions because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, I'm interested in uh, kind of what can be done in your view moving forward on a city level to protect against potential harms that are coming from national policy. Can you repeat the question for me one more time, please? Yeah. Um, what can be done on a city level to protect against harms from national policy? Um, hmm. Well, I think most of our budget is local, and, and most of our money doesn't come from the feds. Um, and Stockton hasn't been a huge grant haven for federal support anyway. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, just continue doing what we're, we're doing and, and upholding our values of equity, equality, inclusion, um, and figure out how do we solve these rules so we don't have time for pauses because we're finding real challenges. Like, how do we educate people, prepare them for the 21st century? Um, how do we end cycles of gang violence and poverty? Um, so those, those issues will take up all our time, and that's how we'll inoculate ourselves from national craziness. Definitely. Um, so to end on sort of a positive note, um, what's the biggest success you've achieved as mayor so far? I know it's only been two weeks, but um, maybe a, a success you've seen so far? Yeah, well, in last week I, I announced um, I was able to work with Scully to get the act to every senior and junior in Stockton Unified School District. And that was special for me because I went to that that's the school district I was graduating from. Awesome. Wow. That's super cool. So are they going to use that in school or? Yes, they help apply for scholarships. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, are guidance counselors going to be, like, helping with that as well? Well, it's an app on the student's phone, so the primary responsibility is on them, but the guidance counselors have been trained as well to kind of help with there's any questions. Cool, cool. Awesome. Well, I love education, so that's that's awesome to hear. Um, well, thank you so much um, for your time today. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and um, congratulations again on um, earning the, the role of mayor. All right, we'll talk to you later. All right, sounds good. Thanks. Bye. Bye.